Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. Today's uh, discussion is going to be about education as in-person meetings are paused. And I have two really fantastic guests with me today. I have Annette Lowenstein, who is the chair of the Department of, Me of Ophthalmology uh, at the Tel Aviv Medical Center. And she is the general secretary for your retina. And joining me again is Dr. Timothy Murray, who is the director of the Murray Ocular Oncology and Retina Center in Miami, Florida, and the president of the American Society of Retina Specialists. As of today, July 2nd, 2020, uh, we have a total of 1.7 million cases worldwide of coronavirus, 567,000 deaths, 2.6 million cases in the United States, uh, where we are now topping 50,000 new cases per day as the pandemic kind of accelerates here in the US with 128,000 uh, deaths. So we're really in two different uh, areas uh, in Israel, where Anat is, and in the United States, where Tim is. And so let's uh, start with you, Tim. Uh, Tim, you're in Miami, Florida. Uh, Florida is one of the hotbeds of coronavirus right now. What, what's the situation like in Miami? So first, thanks for having us, John. It's a pleasure to be with you, like always. Uh, Miami has been a hotbed since this whole pandemic has begun. Um, but it's been interesting because I haven't seen that impact um, with this resurgence of cases um, impacting hospital and ICU and mortality. Um, there's been a lot of discussion maybe that we're seeing a shift to a younger demographic that's, that's testing positive and that, that they're lower risk for need for hospitalization and they're significantly lower risk for dying from the disease. But having said that, I think the issue with us is that as we've opened the state, the social distancing and the mask use um, in our younger uh, population is, is really below what our expectations would be. And Tim, they've just closed the beaches for 4th of July in Miami, which is just almost unheard of to imagine that. Are, are pe people respecting that? Are they maintaining social distancing or is it much like life is normal? Um, I think for some people, life is terrifying right now. And I think for another demographic, life is normal. And I think that our younger population has really felt that they're their risk is much lower and, and they, they, they don't see the impact uh, of the disease in the way that we think of it medically. Closing the beaches for the, for the 4th of July is unheard of, but because the social distancing couldn't be met on the beach when we opened, I think that has pushed our, our local uh, and state governments to say, if you can't behave with appropriate distancing, you, you don't have access to the beach. It's much easier, John, to close the beach totally than it is to police the beach for people that are, are, not, are not really obeying kind of the existing uh, restrictions. And Tim, you've got a very unique practice in that you take care of a lot of kids along with older adults. Are you seeing variations in your practice volume? Are patients staying away? Or are they actually coming in to see you for their injections? And then from the pediatric standpoint, are you seeing kids affected with uh, coronavirus in a severe way? So um, I've been lucky, as you know, we've stayed open through the entire pandemic because of the need to deliver care to our patients. Um, but even being open, what happened was many of our patients self-selected not to come in. Um, and over the last two weeks, people started feeling comfortable again until the surge what we started. But what's interesting, John, is that we're definitely seeing that people that did not come in for their care have much worse disease. We're seeing decreases in visual acuity and function, and we're seeing a lot more activity in subretinal and interretinal edema. So I keep pushing and stressing how important it is, if you can, to make sure you see your ophthalmologist for care delivery. Now for kids, Luckily, none of the children that I have taken care of um, through this entire pandemic have, have been positive. There's some tight restrictions on getting these kids into the operating room to examine them, um, which I think is appropriate. Um, but bo bottom line is that, that we've been blessed in, in this practice really to have avoided seeing a lot of people ill from this disease. And not in Tel Aviv and in Israel in general, it seems like a different 
world compared to what we're experiencing here in the United States, much lower rates of infection, lower rates of death. What is the status on the ground there? So first of all, Israel was lucky in the fact that uh, very early on, we stopped a lot of activities that could uh, bring more uh, sick people. For example, I think what was very unique in Israel that very fast, all the elderly people, and not so elderly, you know, everyone who is uh, above uh, maybe 60, uh, just stayed at home for very long periods of time. They didn't see their grandchildren and it was a big, big deal in Israel, uh, not seeing the grandchildren. You know, we are very close in Israel with the families. So people, there were just movies on how you should see your grandchildren just from the balcony and things like that. So a lot of old people just stayed at home. And therefore many of the people in Israel who uh, got uh, infected, they had a, a lighter disease. Uh, so that was very much in our favor. Another thing uh, that we had in Israel was uh, tracking uh, or, uh, with your iPhone that was uh, organized by the government and some army facilities with technologies that they have from, uh, it's a little funny to say, but technology that they have from the secret services in Israel and they are enabled the tracking of people that uh, Accord with their iPhones. So, for example, uh, I could uh, just go to my clinic, which is nearby a mall, a shopping mall, and uh, I got a message yesterday. There was uh, someone that got, uh, found, got was found out to be positive. Uh, if you were there between two and three or something like that, just put yourself into quarantine and things like that. So, I'm not so sure how many people complied with that. But at least uh, there, was, there were these messages that came out uh, really, really all the time. Now, um, the, I think you're very right. The, we, were, we got ready very, very early. So I think it was maybe even in the beginning of March that we uh, were instructed to stop elective surgeries. And uh, a lot of um, uh, resources in uh, the operating theaters were uh, actually... Um, being were kept in, or in in case we'll have many people who will need to be uh, with respirators, and uh, at the end we had very little people who needed to be uh, actually dealt with this way, but we were prepared. As a result of all this, we could open up quite early. My service uh, continued to provide care all along the epidemic. We had uh, very, um, very uh, strict measures. We, div we were divided into three capsules. Uh, each capsule was allowed to be in the hospital for 12 hours and then was not allowed to be for 24 hours. Each capsule had a color and on the day that uh, it was that color, only people that had bracelets with the color were allowed in the hospital. So in, ca in case someone gets infected, not all the department gets to be quarantined. And we kept uh, sending messages to the patients, also on, on TV, on the media, the hospital was very active in that. Please come, we are very, uh, we provide a very safe environment. And uh, also we called all the patients that were supposed to come the next day and asked them if they are planning to come. If they said that they are not planning to, and we looked at their charts, we had, I had a physician uh, that was in her early weeks of pregnancy and she didn't want to come in. So she stayed at home, she was connected to, to the electronic system, medical record system, and she looked at all the cases and, and, and if she, th you know, if it was, let's say, an RP patient that uh, has an annual exam, she said, okay, you can postpone your visit. And immediately they got rescheduled. So we will not be, uh, be backed up. For the people who are not, who are willing to come, we said we are providing a safe environment for injections. And then we had two other options for intravitreal injections. One, we got a donation from WeWork Israel of a, a whole location remote from the hospital where we put, a, we had all the electronic medical records of the hospital, computer system, OCT, a technician, a physician, and we did just a retina injection clinic there. And people really liked it. It's a, two kilometers from the hospital, very clean, very, uh, very safe. And the last thing is that we went to patients' home to inject, to patients that uh, we got a van from the hospital uh, with a cooler and with a nurse and with a driver. And uh, my resident that uh, identified people who needed an injection and did not necessarily need an OCT, for example, if they were in the loading phase or in a fixed regimen, we uh, went to their homes and injected. Every day a physician went and we injected about 20 patients every day, all during the pandemic. 
That is an absolutely amazing response. Uh, is that commonplace for most of the hospitals in Israel or is that- No, we were the only ones who did it. All hospitals were afraid from endophthalmitis, and I provided information to the Ministry of Health that actually what is important is only the povidone iodine and the needle and the needle tip, uh, and uh, and uh, convinced them. And uh, we were the only ones to do it, and we did it as long as I didn't need the physicians back in the hospital, because now uh, you know, we have not, we, we have only about five percent no show now, so uh, I need everyone in. I cannot send them out anymore. Okay. But uh, as long as we, I could, every, every person who was not in the capsule of the day went out to inject. That's really amazing. I would imagine the patient appreciation. And they loved it. They just loved it. Absolutely. That yeah. is truly amazing. And that's, that's interesting to hear. Tim, do you know of any retina specialists in the U.S. that are doing something similar to what Anad alluded to as far as going out and injecting patients at home? So anecdotally, I've, I've heard that some patients have been injected at home. Um, and that, I think that's an amazing response. I hope that you guys will put together a manuscript so that the whole world can have an opportunity to see what you did and how you responded, because that's really important. But John- I, I have beautiful movies. You will not believe it. Sorry for interrupting. I have physicians kneeling on their knees to inject because the bed was too low. Really, I have beautiful movies and the people how they accepted us. It's really, it was unbelievably nice. Sorry. So, but but John, I think that's a hugely um, excellent approach. But because we were open and our volumes didn't drop, you know, we um, we were able to continue to have a high injection volume that kept us incredibly busy throughout the entire pandemic. Now, having having said that, for example, Anat's comment about opening a satellite site away from the hospital. Um, the group in Boston at OCB with Jeff Heyer had that same experience. People didn't want to go to the hospital because of the fear of the hospital as a source of infection, but they were willing to go to an offsite office. Um, and I think if you had the ability to do that, that was huge. And then, then the group at Cornell, essentially in the midst of all of what was going on, were essentially closed. So, so very different practice responses um, across the U.S., even in top centers with, with outstanding people. You know, Tim, that's a great point. I think there's going to be so many stories that come from this about how different places had to manage it. It'd be great if your retina and ASRS could put something together um, on this because that's the first I've heard of a Knott's response and what an amazingly organized and well-thought-out approach from such an early stage. Anat, you were going to say something? I want to say that, uh, uh, of course, the best thing comes to you, but because so many patients did not want to leave home because the atmosphere in Israel was that all people need to stay home. That was what came loud and clear all over the media. Stay home. Uh, love your grandparents if you don't see them. Uh, it was all over the place. So uh, many people, even though our hospital was not exactly in this mood, our hospital did provide the signs in the media. We are safe. We are open. We, we are doing everything that's needed. Still, many people wanted to stay home, and we provided that opportunity. And now that I don't have the resources to send patients to, from home to home, because, uh, physicians from home to home, now we have another initiative that we started now when uh, coming out of the pandemic, is that we go to elderly homes or elderly people homes, you know, like, I don't know the exact uh, expression in Israel, in English, uh, like, you know, where people go all, get old and they live in a yeah, nursing homes. shelter or something like that. Nursing homes. Uh, so now we are providing a physician and a nurse to go to the big nursing homes and they are giving us a room, a clean room, and the patients just, just come down and get injected. And uh, we are now started an effort together with uh, Novartis Israel. Uh, they gave us a donation from a for a mobile OCT. So if the things will continue to be that way, that we will go with a mobile OCT, maybe not to patients' home because it's too time consuming to start and do an OCT in the home. And then, but in such an elderly place where you can do like 20 patients uh, at one uh, afternoon, then we will take the OCT with us and we'll and the technician and we'll do that as well just to decentralize the patient care for the patients who need it. You know, whoever can come, can come. Now, not, let me ask you, do you think that this is going to carry over beyond COVID? Do you think this is going to be a new and total change in the way that you practice for some of these people? 
I think it will take a long time before we get to exactly where, the way we were before. I will give you an example. We already stopped going to this remote place that was uh, given to us by WeWork, and then a lot of people approached the administration of the hospital, and there were even complaints that we stopped doing that. And now the hospital helped us to open it again. Now the hospital is willing to pay for this place for us to go there again. So I think it will, be, it will take a long time before it will be really not needed. And, uh, and as, as long as it's needed, I mean, uh, I think it's good to have this possibility. That's really, really amazing. Now, both of you are in leadership of your respective societies. And we have meetings that are coming up uh, for ASRS. Tim, it's going to be at the end of July, uh, July 24th through the 27th. Can you describe to us how ASRS is going to look as a virtual meeting? Yeah, so, so John, you know that what a what a big transition. Um, I think all of us have good experience with with our meetings and the camaraderie and the opportunity to interact. Um, but it's clear in the midst of the pandemic that that, that wasn't an option for us. Um, and I'm very respectful of how um, ASRS was able to pivot to a virtual meeting. So what we've asked people to do is the podium talks and our courses and our posters are all submitted electronically and they're actually going to be available essentially two weeks before the meeting so that you can go on the site um, and actually see the, the speaker present with their, their PowerPoint slideshow. So the idea here is if you have an interest, you're going to do that. And then the, the really unique part of this, I think, is instead of having people present through the meeting, we're gonna have moderated panels with two moderators um, and the speakers available that will take questions. And, and I think, John, you and I have said for a long time that sometimes the most interesting content isn't what's presented in the PowerPoint. It's actually the discussion that takes place around the PowerPoint. So I think this may be one of the best informational content meetings for ASRS ever. Um, but it's still hard for me because I'm, a, I'm an in-person type of guy and I'm gonna miss being able to talk to my colleagues face-to-face. -face. Um, and I think that the plan is that we will do this virtual meeting this year, but we'll, we'll pivot back next year if the world looks quieter to an in-person meeting. But I also think that it's likely that we'll keep a virtual component of this meeting going forward maybe in perpetuity. You know, Tim, you're absolutely right. I think this actually gives us a chance to have more discussion, which you're, is, the, is the most interesting part. So many times, and ASRS, your retina do a great job of keeping meetings on time, but you have just five minutes for that panel discussion. And when I look at the modified meeting schedule from the 24th to the 27th, it's condensed. So we're gonna be able to sit down in a matter of just a few hours be able to watch those panels debate and discuss these talks that we're going to have two weeks to watch. The other thing that I noticed, free registration for all ASRS members. Tell us a little bit about that decision. Well, listen, I think all of us recognize what the impact of the pandemic has been for our patients, for ourselves, for our families, and actually for the financial well-being of, of, of our practices. So, um, We've been blessed at the ASRS to have some deep pocket resource that we've put together for a rainy day and, and we felt this was it. So we offered um, free registration for, for our members, um, which I think is, is appropriate in the midst of what's going on. So not only is this going to be amazing content, but, but instead of a thousand dollar registration fee, you know, it's free. So I think it gives you an idea of how committed the ASRS is to this educational initiative and to supporting uh, retina specialists around the country and around the world. Yeah, kudos to the ASRS and to you, Tim, for making that decision because it really, I think, is going to make this an unbelievable meeting. Now, I also read something about virtual exhibit halls. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about the virtual side of the, of the meeting. Well, the whole meeting, of course, is going to be virtual, excuse me, but our participants um, from industry want also that opportunity to interact with our members. Um, and of course, we've always had a, an excellent um, exhibit hall. Um, in this case, it will shift to virtual and you'll be able to interact with people um, in our industry sponsorship one-on-one -on -one through a virtual conversation. Um, 
it probably is going to allow you to speak to people in a more focused way because you can, you can make sure that the person you want to speak to is going to be there to speak with you. And, and I, I think you understand how big a job this is. So Joe Blim and Stacy Kiff and then Phil Ferrone being our program chair, I think they put a huge amount of effort into trying to make this an amazing experience for the participants. So we're, we're excited. And how are you going to have that interactivity online? What's this going to look like, Tim? Are we going to go to the ASRS website? We'll be hosted by a third-party website. We'll be, we be able to chat with friends. What, what is it going to look like in concept? Well, you know, there's been, um, I think VBS has done several of its, of its VBS meetings using a Zoom format. We're going through um, our, our industry partner for, um, for our meetings, which is Ovation. Um, and they're the repository for, for the slide setup. They'll run the slides for us so that we don't have glitches in people's internet connectivity. Um, and then I actually, I wanted the, the board to come together in person so that we could have a, an interaction that was live with the virtual. But because things are so crazy, it's gonna be virtual across the board. So I think you'll be able to see the, the two moderators um, and the panelists, and we'll have a, a discussion that's interfaced through a chat. So questions can be submitted and they'll be addressed. I, I actually think that people are gonna walk away from this thinking this was one of the best ASR meetings in, in history. And that's why I think that, it, that because the reach is gonna be so broad, you know, John, people, people are able to come to a virtual meeting that could never attend an in-person meeting. And, that, and for those individuals, this is gonna be an incredible opportunity. World-class content, world-class speakers, you know, in your home or your office, wherever you're going to be. I agree with you, Tim. I think that it will really lead to a globalization of ASRS because when people who, because travel is such an issue for people from Europe and Asia and all over, they'll get to see what we see and are fortunate to have every year with ASRS. And I think it will lead to just this amazing exchange of ideas. Speaking of content, I know I'm looking forward to the data on port delivery being presented. What are some of the things that we should be looking forward to that's going to be new data at the meeting? Well, I think that, you know, we're going to focus on experiences with COVID-19 and the pandemic. I think that's a hot topic for all of us. I think you'll get some discussion about um, financial resource allocation um, and then some amazing sort of academically focused intellectual content port delivery here. Um, you're going to hear about some of the safety issues related with anti-VEGF therapy. Um, we're going to have discussions that focus on um, dry and wet components of neovascular AMD. Um, and surgery. I mean, remember, we're, we're a surgical society, so I always look forward to that. I think the surgery parts are going to be interesting because the video content is going to be available offline um, for people to be able to watch. If you're lucky enough, like you are, John, to have a beautiful setup, you can have one screen running the, the lecture while you're actually listening to the moderated discussion. So I think it's, I, I'm excited. I think it's going to be amazing. That's awesome, Tim. Great recap. Not, I'd like to ask you many of the same questions. So General Secretary for your retina, your meeting follows a little bit further in October, late October. Uh, but tell me what that meeting is going to look like for participants. Yeah, I want to tell you the truth. We really were um, reluctant to do a virtual meeting. We held up, I think, the last. We really, we didn't notify the people because we were not sure. We really wanted to hope that we will be able to have maybe a hybrid or, or something, but at the end it didn't work out because uh, the industry, they needed to uh, make sure with the hotels that they are uh, booking and so forth, and we couldn't hold anymore and we needed to, to move it on to be virtual. Uh, and uh, we are not providing the talks uh, two weeks in advance, but uh, we have all the talks pre-recorded, of course, and uh, the, 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 the um, Q&A will be live. And uh, the, it, it will also provide uh, an opportunity for uh, in, in live interaction um, and also to, have, uh, to, to make sure that there are no glitches in the talks and things like that. Uh, we are going to run uh, during the three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we're going to run uh, between three and four uh, different uh, channels. Um, so, yeah, so it's going to be, you, you will be able to choose whatever you want from the channels and move from one to the other. And the content will be available uh, following uh, the, 
a meeting for people who register to the meeting. We made a decision to um, uh, make the registration uh, cost 50 euros. It's a small amount. It's much uh, cheaper than uh, the $1,000 that uh, was the, the amount for an ASRS meeting. And we felt that uh, if a person pays, he's more committed to the meeting. I don't know if we were right, but we kind of figured that 50 euros is not too much. And it, it is also a way that we thought it could help uh, the industry support the meeting in another way, because they provi can provide vouchers. Theoretically, I'm not saying that that was already organized or anything, but that, that was our thought in the executive uh, committee of the board of the Euretina. Um, so uh, we are going to provide uh, three different channels. We are going to provide instructional courses. We are going to provide what is called the Euretina sessions, which have to do, which have to do with uh, specific topics, like like always. And we will have sessions that will be called um, prize le prize lecture ser uh, sections. They will actually not be award lectures. We have that also, but I'm talking about free papers that are many, many, many are submitted. We have, uh, I think, a few thousands. And we will have, uh, I think, uh, uh, four or even more sessions of uh, the best free papers that will be submitted. They will also need to be pre-recorded as everything. Since we found out from our experience that we accumulated in the last week that the span of attention in a virtual meeting is a little shorter than it is in a face-to-face -face meeting, we decided to have the talks really to ask the people to have maximum eight minutes. Uh, that will be the maximum and to kind of encourage, encourage the section heads to ask for talks that are only five minutes. And for each talk, doesn't matter what the length is, we're providing at least two minutes of discussion. Because as you said, I think it's the most important thing in every meeting. I, like you, Tim, I really miss the coffee breaks, not for the coffee, but rather for uh, being able to say hi to you, to see uh, how your family is, and to chat about your practice and my practice. But I think that because we already have so many friends internationally, and we are seeing them so often, uh, we saw them so often, I think now it's possible to continue the camaraderie also in a virtual meeting. We are lucky that way. I don't know about the younger generation. They will be completely uh, remote from one another. But we have so many good friends from all the advisory boards and things like that, that we are able to continue the friendship also uh, like that. Um, I think the highlights that will be uh, reported are very similar to the ones at the ASRS. Of course, we'll talk about uh, new drugs, uh, longer acting drugs uh, that are coming up. Uh, and of course, slow release devices such as the PDS is going to be a big highlight with the phase three trial results. And uh, also uh, there will be a lot, a lot, even though it's not only a surgical uh, meeting like the SRS or mostly, a lot of surgical sessions. Uh, the board of the URT now is comprised mainly of surgeons. So uh, there'll be a lot of surgical retina sessions and also some surgical retina sessions that have to do with the new data that comes up uh, from uh, uh, structural changes in the macula after retinal detachment surgery. We have a whole symposium on that and things like that. So a lot of new things coming up. Some amazingly organized uh, multi-center trials in Europe uh, for retinal detachment repair. We always get so much great information right. from Europe as far as that goes. I also think very generous, 50 euros, at least from a US standpoint, is an amazing value. And I really think that's going to increase your audience I know that I will be registering and tuning in October 2nd through the 4th. Now, will presenters pre-record their talks or not and then just be available for discussion? Or are these going to be live talks? Uh, no, uh, pre-recorded talks and live Q&A. And normally... I, the I had to tell you the, the truth, I was really against it. And I thought we needed to have live talks because I said, okay, so what's the big deal? If I'm already recorded, why do they need even to... But I saw it in uh, some of the meetings that I attended uh, in the last months. Uh, and I think it's the best way to do it because then you know the length of the talk exactly, you're getting ready, and then the Q&A is uh, just for a few minutes and whoever, you know, there are no, no major glitches uh, that, can potential, that can potentially happen there. And so an amazing I'm, archive of previous uh, talks from previous meetings as well. I believe it goes back five or 10 years, actually. All the archive talks, just like Tim mentioned for ASRS. Go ahead, Tim. 
So not you're going to run their presentation, not not as a live presentation, but it's going to run and then the Q and A. Actually, actually, the decision was I'm not sure it's the right decision, uh, but the, uh, we decided to have Q and A after each talk. I thought it's better at the end of the session because it seemed to me too complicated. But any events that are running our uh, audiovisual and all the digital uh, things, they said it will be fine. So uh, we are going to mandate two-minute discussion after each talk. After each talk, that was the decision of the board. I, I'm not sure that it's not better the way you are doing it, actually. I yeah, John, I, I've got to say I'm excited because <clears throat> people are going to be able to look at the talks at their own pace. Hopefully, look at them before the meeting. Um, and, and what we'll probably do is have one slide for each talk in the panel discussion that highlights the talk um, and, then, and then leads into discussion. So for me, I, I think this is going to be an amazing um, opportunity to showcase the discussion um, as opposed to having to focus on the entire talk. Um, and, and, and so I'm, I'm pleased that we chose to do that. I think that's, that's kind of a, a unique approach. Anat, I'm like you, I, I desperately did not want to have a virtual meeting. I pushed, I pushed hard to have a meeting in person, um, but when it became obvious that we were not going to see the opportunity to travel, um, we did switch to the virtual meeting. And my, my belief is that there will be a virtual component to our meetings going forward from now on. We'll have our in-person meeting and we'll have a virtual meeting. And it's interesting now in hindsight to look at Seattle where our meeting was to be hosted. Um, absolutely not the place you want to, to think about being with all that's been going on in Seattle as, as a hotbed for, for the virus, which they've managed very well but a hotbed for some of the politics that's going on that, that maybe not managed quite as well. <laughs> and Tim, well, I don't want to start to talk politics in Israel. That's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Tim, what role, what role did that play in making the decision to cancel meeting or was it purely based off COVID? So, so John, it's interesting. We actually made our decision before there was a chopper jazz. So, um, it makes us look really insightful, but in, in honesty, we had already pivoted to a virtual format. Um, we surveyed our members to get an idea of who would travel internationally, who would travel nationally, what the fears were. And it was very obvious that there were significant concerns from our membership. So we didn't just make a unilateral leadership decision. We actually were able to get information from our members through our survey. Um, and, and everyone will tell you, I kept pushing in person, in person, in person, but it became clear that that was not the right thing to do for our membership. And Tim, the SRS has been really great about doing these interactive polls that they send out every, Stacy sends them out every week or two. What was the percentage of people that were willing to travel at this point? So about 35% of people were willing to travel. Another third was willing to travel if things quieted down. And another third was like, there's no way you're getting me at the meeting, almost no matter what's going on. So I think it just tells us that we all have different comfort levels um, with our exposure and our activities. I think we've seen that in our practices. I think we, we're seeing that in our, in our personal behaviors. And Tim, what goes into canceling a meeting like this, or not canceling it, but changing it from a live meeting to a virtual meeting? Are you able to get a refund? Is that an insurance related thing? And how do you deal with sponsors that have outlaid a lot of money for booth space and interaction and things such as that? So it's, it's, it's interesting how that worked. And those are great questions because you commit to a room block and, and a venue site um, at the hotels, catering. So our, our meeting costs are typically about $2 million a year, um, much of which is pre-contracted. Um, but I'll tell you that um, Joe Blim, as our, our executive, our chief executive officer for this, um, was, she's tenacious. Um, and what we did is we were able to get a commitment to push our meeting um, in Seattle by two years. Um, so we're going to actually go to Seattle and we'll use the resources in Seattle, assuming that the world is at a point where we're able to travel. Um, and, and that was able to be done with actually a minimal um, cost. Remember that Stockholm was coming up too, and we had already contracted with Stockholm, and we've decided not to go internationally 
um, in the short term because of some of the, the travel concerns that go. I'm not concerned so much about traveling nationally, but I don't want to leave the country. We also asked our members surveyed on that, and at least the U.S. members were not comfortable traveling internationally. So we pushed that meeting also, and the, the financial exposure was much lower there. But I've got to tell you that um, you do have to be tenacious. Insurance is available if this, you know, force majeure and, and if this is an unprecedented event. But, but people are pushing back now that we're getting farther and farther away. Um, but for us, we were able to essentially recover all of our uh, expenses, which I find amazing. And that benefits our members hugely. As to our corporate sponsors that had already um, put money in for us, you know, they sponsor us for multiple reasons. And, and I think everybody's been appreciative of what this, this has done to, to meetings, to practices, to physicians and their families. And, and our sponsorship has been strong through this. They'll have the virtual exhibit booths like we've talked about. And we actually constructed the virtual environment the way they wanted it. There's some of these beautiful virtual things where you walk in and it looks like you're, you know, in, a, in this beautiful, you know, set. It turns out that that and, and putting together the avatars is incredibly expensive. So we decided let's not do that. Let's put the money where it matters, which is get you to, hooked up to the doctors that you want to speak to and, and want to speak to you. So good decisions really across the board by the executive committee and, and by Joe Blem and Stacey Kiff. That's really amazing. And not for, for your retina, when did yeah. you all come to that decision? How do you come to that decision? Yeah, so uh, basically the main reason that we came to the decision was our discussion with the industry. The industry was, were very reluctant to continue in, uh, with a face-to-face -face meeting because of all the risks that are involved that uh, were mentioned by Tim and uh, by myself earlier. And uh, we, uh, uh, to get, actually the leader was uh, Dara Conlon, who is, who is our executive vice president, and she was really able to negotiate some of the expenses uh, coming out from the cancellation of the venue, and all that and also to push some of the some of the events to uh, future years um, there is a I, I think that uh, so when we started to look at it at that time was a weekend that was I think the European Neurological Society uh, that they were the first big meeting to go virtual and I think they usually have something like 7,000 participants so we thought it's similar to us because these are our numbers and you know how many registered to the virtual 40,000 40,000 registered but they had free so we decided we don't need 40,000 and, yeah, and we will not go free. But that gave us a lot of confidence that it's possible to go virtual. Another thing that we did a lot of, um, uh, like uh, uh, we tried to see what's going on there and we all registered to that thing to see how it's going on. And apparently all these uh, 3D virtual exhibits are not really important. So I think you made the right decision, team. While it's really nice to have uh, you come in and you have these uh, gates open up and everything is like uh, nice, it's not important to have a 3D virtual uh, co uh, corporate exhibit. Uh, it's enough that you have the data, you have a booth talk, you have everything that you are used to see in a face-to-face in a -face exhibition, but you don't need all these pyrotechnic uh, beautiful things. It's not really important. What is important is mainly the scientific content. So I think that was uh, really uh, important in our decision process to go this way. And uh, hopefully, I mean, we still have time and we will be able to see other meetings and uh, to go by it. We have M events that are organizing it for us, for us and by now they have a lot of uh, experience in virtual meetings. And uh, hopefully it will work well. I think that... Uh, both uh, the ASRS and the U-Retina meetings are very important meetings in the world of uh, retina all over the world. And I think people are looking forward to just to see the, the scientific content. You know, Nat, I think you have a very good point there in that if you can double or triple the viewership, what kind of a value add is that for industry? So for industry to say, hey, look, now we have three times the amount of eyes watching as we present our port delivery data or our phase two data for GA or whatnot. That is a tremendous value. And then to hear that discussion is just also very invaluable. Now, not you also have a winter meeting uh, and I believe it's in Lithuania in February. 
What are the Correct. plans? How, how confident Correct. are you that that's going to be an in-person meeting versus a virtual meeting? It will probably be, be virtual. We were already notified by the Lithuanian Ophthalmological Society that don't think they can host us in February. So okay. most, most chances that it will be virtual as well. Very similar format to what you're going to do with the, uh, your retina meeting? To tell you the truth, we did not decide yet. That will be much more simple. You know, traditionally, it's a very educational meeting. It goes in one channel. There is uh, like a session on AMD, session on DME. It's very, it's, it's quite simple to organize. If we'll manage, if we'll survive the Euretina, it will be easy to do that. Absolutely. Tim, I'll come back to you as far as, uh, as far as when do you see us being able to have normal meetings again, not just as it pertains to ASRS, but AAO is in November in Las Vegas. Do you see that being a live meeting or do you think it's going to be well into 2021 before we actually have live meetings again? Well, you know that um, the Academy is planning a live meeting to this day. They haven't, they haven't transitioned to virtual. I know they want to have a live meeting. Um, but I'll tell you that as, as this continues, it seems less and less likely that that is a, a real possibility. I think there are grave concerns. And one of the things that, that caused us to transition is we in no way wanted to put our members at risk of illness, whether that's the travel, whether that's the hotel, whether that's the meeting. Um, and I know that, that David Parks and the, and the trustees also have similar thoughts for the American Academy of Ophthalmology. They have a date at which they can cancel that people that have already registered for hotels and the meeting would, would be able to get their money back. That's, that date's approaching. Um, it's gonna be interesting to see what the decision is for that. Once that date's passed, then, then I think the Academy is going to have a difficult time if they cancel because now they're gonna to have to have the encumbrance of people that have arranged travel plans and hotels um, so, so I'm a little, I'm a little surprised they haven't canceled yet. Um, so remember the way it worked for us is the Redness Society canceled first. I hung on as long as I could, but it was clear we couldn't. Um, I was hopeful that the Academy would, would be able to, to move forward in person, but with this resurgence of COVID cases and the concerns and sort of limitations in travel and access, I feel less and less likely that that's actually going to be an in-person meeting, but I have no, I have no personal knowledge um, from the Academy that, that that's their decision. What do you think, John? I, yeah, I agree with you, Tim. We take care of so many elderly patients. I don't worry as much about myself getting coronavirus, being younger and healthier, um, but I do worry uh -huh. that I would have it younger. I used to be young, now I'm just younger. Uh -huh. Um, and so I, I used to worry, um, I, I worry more about us getting it being asymptomatic and bringing it back to our patients. And I tell our fellows and staff every day, look, if we give this to a patient, they take it back to their nursing home, we could be responsible for dozens of deaths in older people. And I, we just cannot have that happen. So I think as much as I feel for you being president of the ASRS, the meeting is such a wonderful thing that you get to put together. And it's got to be hard not to be able to enjoy that in person. The responsible thing is to do just what you did. Yeah, so John, this is not the year to have wanted to be the president of ASRS, <laughs> let me tell you, not the right year. After, after maybe they'll, maybe years, they'll give you an extra year to do it. Maybe they'll <laughs> say, look, we'll have you back for next year to do it as well. Is AAO engaging you in that decision-making process or is that totally on their own accord? Um, I think the AAO is really making independent decisions, but they're always good at reaching out and they're very, they're, they're very thorough about looking at what's going on internationally. Remember, the Academy is a big international meeting. I mean, it's huge. So I think that what's going on internationally, what's going on nationally, surge, you know, increasing cases, possible increasing hospitalization. But John, I think you hit on a point that I think is really quite, quite important for people to recognize. We're frontline caregivers. So, you know, people keep saying, oh, you're the ophthalmologist. And I'm like, you know, I've seen more patients through the course of this pandemic than almost any other specialty has, has seen. I'm not, I'm like you, I'm not so fearful for myself, but I'm fearful for my patients. And that's what's really pushed the process for us to maintain social distancing in the office, to have good sanitation practices, to make our patients feel comfortable that they can see us safely. 
So, you know, this isn't really about the doctors. This is about so much more. It's your family. It's your patients. It's, it's, it's much more than just you. If it was just saying, are we willing to go in, in a perfect world and there's no risk beyond the risk to ourselves, I think we'd have in-person meetings much earlier. But that's not the case. I think you're absolutely right suggesting that we have to think much beyond just the individual physician here and what that impact is. And I'm sure that's where the academy is focused also. Absolutely. And, and not for and you, John, all, you I, yeah, go ahead. And not. Yeah, I just want to say that uh, even though I know that AO is still uh, planning to go face to face, I will be so surprised if this happened, especially in Vegas. I mean, how can you keep social distancing in Vegas? Uh, I think it's not going to be easy. And I would, I, even though I, I, you know, if, if there will be flights and, uh, and it will go face to face, I will go. But uh, I, I, would, I will be surprised if it happened. Yes, and I, I, I agree with both of you. I think it would be surprising if it happens. And as you bring that up, actually, no one in the U.S. could actually come to the Euretna meeting now because we're banned from Europe. And really, probably rightfully so. We really weren't as responsible as we should have been politically uh, with this, with our lockdown. And so I certainly don't blame Europe for that. I will, however, certainly tune into the Euretna meeting knowing that it's only 50 euros and so October 2nd through the 4th for that. Now, not you all have the meeting in association with the European Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. correct. So it's this huge meeting that has just cataract surgeons and retina surgeons and whatnot. Did you make this decision along with them? And are yeah, they going to so pursue a similar... Yeah. Absolutely. You know everything. <laughs> you know, uh, we actually waited for them to decide before we made our decision because it seemed to us that, and that was also one of the things that pushed us to decide because once they decided to go completely virtual and they are actually, they are having some hybrid, they are having small, a small uh, subset of the meeting that will be face to face, but most of it will be virtual because a lot of a lot of the industry exhibition uh, a lot of the mere exhibits actually belong to both meetings and uh, the exhibit hall is of both meetings then once they decided to go virtual then it was also a thing that pushed us to go virtual and the meeting is actually uh, staggered it's not exactly the exactly the same dates it's staggered but they will also be uh, virtual and then on a last note and not um when we talk about members in training and fellows, you know, a lot of them use these meetings to interview for jobs. What are some of the advantages uh, to your retina for a member in training right now? And what are some of the disadvantages? And then overall, what, what is good about being someone in training right now? So actually, we discussed it very thoroughly, and this, and we decided that because the the fee is so low, or even a fellow can pay it or a resident, we decided not to give a special prize for members in training, except that the U Retina has a group that is called Yours, that is comprised of young Retina specialists. I don't remember exactly the criteria, but uh, they need to be young. <laughs> they need to be a certain number of years out of fellowship. I, I don't I don't remember exactly the details, but once you are a member of yours, then you are, you don't, you are exempt from paying. So there, there is this, and, and, you can, and, and you can register to be a member of yours for free. It's not that you need to pay for that. So there is an opening for people who cannot pay and want to be active. You have to be kind of uh, show activity in the young uh, retina specialist group of Europe. That's wonderful. And I'll tell you, as a fellow, a lot of times one fellow has to stay behind and the other fellow gets to go to the meeting. Right. This allows every fellow to be at that meeting. Tim, same question for you. ASRS, big place for fellows to interview for jobs and to whatnot. What are some of the advantages of having this virtual meeting and how would you advise fellows to go about looking for jobs at this point? Well, first to the point of academic content, I, I think that the didactic opportunities during this pandemic have been amazing. So there is content that would have not ever been available to most fellows or to residents. And being able to participate in the ASRS and have access for this through our fellows in training program or the early career section, it, it, that's a no brainer. Okay, so it, as much as we've lost on the patient, inpatient contact 
that is so critical to our training, we have certainly gained in, in the, the virtual opportunities through the didactic experiences. And then what I think is really helpful here is that if you're a fellow and you're in the midst of the job search, you get to hear the people present, you get to see what they're doing, you get to observe them on the panels, and you have contact information available. So I think that, that it's going to be a different um, environment for this, but you're going to get to know a lot more about the practices that you may be looking at by actually seeing what the, the partners are doing than you've ever had access to in the past. So I think this is gonna be a lot more transparent. Um, anytime something's new, and this is all new, it, it's a little scary maybe, a little intimidating, but for the most part, I think this is gonna be a, a, a great year, even for people looking to go into training, um, transitioning into practice. Absolutely, I think the dissemination of information that we're gonna have from these meetings being virtual, and the new members that you can engage from both the ASRS standpoint and the Uretina standpoint. It's going to be absolutely amazing. I look forward to seeing how this evolves our educational opportunities because I think both of you have said we will have something like this going forward even when COVID-19 is done. And so I want to thank you, Anat. I want to thank you, Tim, for joining us today. This has been a wonderful conversation, very insightful and enlightening. And uh, I want to encourage our viewers and those that tune in on the podcast to listen to us every week as we get back to practice. With New Retina Radio, this is John Kitchens. Stay safe. Back to Practice has been made possible with support from Allergan and Novartis. We'd like to thank our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications, LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, in this webcast podcast.